when you have the notion that high moral acts have to be free from self-interest, then worship, which is one of the highest moral acts possible, is reduced to a duty. And when worship is reduced to a duty, it vanishes. One of the great enemies of worship in our church is our own misguided virtue. We have the vague notion that seeking our own pleasure is evil. And therefore, our virtue imprisons the longings of our heart and causes worship to shrivel up and die. For what is worship if not the feasting of the soul upon the manifold glories of God? Try this definition for a general overarching one for worship. Worship is an inward feeling and an outward action that reflects the worth of God. An inward feeling and an outward action that reflects the worth of God. And the inward feeling is the essence. Because Jesus said, you remember, with their lips they honor me, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me. Worship is vain, empty, hollow, when the heart is not moved to God. I think it's possible to describe in three general ways how the heart is moved in worship. And I think these three, if you understand them in their general sense, cover all the inward acts of worship. Let me try them on you. Number one, in worship the heart can delight in God and His character and His manifold glory. As the psalmist said, my soul is feasted as with marrow and fat. My mouth praises thee with joyful lips when I think of thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the watches of the night. Delighting in God. Second, the heart can respond in worship by longing for God. Longing that our delight would be richer, fuller, deeper, wider, more intense, more consistent. As the psalmist says, as a heart pants for the flowing stream, so my soul longs for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? Third, the heart can worship in response to God by sorrow for not feeling any longing or any delight. That too is worship. That too reflects the worth of God. The psalmist says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a beast toward thee. Dead. Dumb. Blank, empty. But he repented of it. He was sorry for it. 
And that too is worship. So, if you feel no delight in God, if you feel no longing for deeper delight in God, or if you feel no sorrow that the delight and the longing are absent, you do not worship. No matter how many motions you go through with your body or with your lips. Isn't it clear then that the person who thinks of virtue as overcoming self-interest and who thinks of vice as seeking pleasure won't be able to worship. For worship is the most hedonistic affair of life and must not be threatened or ruined by the least thought of disinterestedness. The great hindrance to worship is not that you are sold out to pleasure. Oh, no. The great hindrance to worship is that you and I are willing to settle for such paltry, measly pleasures. We're not nearly hedonistic enough to go for what really counts. Listen to how Jeremiah puts this. This is a great passage from Jeremiah 2.11. My people have exchanged their glory for that which does not profit. And then listen to this reaction. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of life, and have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The great barrier to worship among God's people is not that we are always seeking our own satisfaction. No way is that a barrier to worship. The great barrier to worship is that we are seeking so weak, so half-hearted, that we're willing to take little sips out of broken cisterns when the, the well, the fountain of living waters is just over the next hill. Go get it. Be a hedonist. One of my great mentors in Christian hedonism is C.S. Lewis, from whom I've learned as much as anybody on this topic. I didn't mean to say that. From whom I'm, I have learned as much from him as from anybody on this topic. I remember a day in 1968, great day, Pasadena, California, when I read the first page of the sermon entitled The Weight of Glory. It says the same thing that Jeremiah said, but it brings it up to date. Listen to this great page. If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you ask almost any great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not merely of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves. 
as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important thing. I don't think that's the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we might follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall find ultimately, if we do, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and has no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would appear that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on playing with mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Close quote. That's it. That's the problem with worship, isn't it? We are satisfied with the pleasures of home, job, friends, family, TV, microwave, Apple II, occasional night out, and a yearly vacation, and we have become so accustomed to these small, unexciting, short-lived, inadequate pleasures that our capacity for joy has shriveled up like a raisin. And you come and you hear me say, delight yourself in the Lord, and you kind of, what does that mean? And therefore, worship has shriveled. But I have a dream for Bethlehem, like Martin Luther. I have a dream, <laughs> Martin Luther King. I dream that one hour a week in the family life of Bethlehem Baptist Church will be utterly unique from all the other hours. A weekly corporate appointment with Almighty God. Unlike any other gathering. I dream of a people who come with hearts that say, O oh God, Thou art my God. I am here to seek Thee, my soul thirsts for Thee, my flesh faints for Thee, as in a dry and weary land. That's why I'm in this room on Sunday morning. I dream about a gathering of people who love conversation with Christian friends. And for the sake of that conversation, give it up one hour a week. And unashamedly bow their heads in earnest prayer during Leah's prelude and call down the power of Almighty God upon this room so that we are shaken before this hour is over. I have a dream in which a family gathers so happy that the only thing to compare them with would be a family in the car on the first day of vacation. <laughs> <laughs> 
A family around a big fat turkey on Thanksgiving. A family at the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, depending on whether you're Swede. (laughs) That happy, the only way you can describe the gathering at Bethlehem is like that. Unfettered hearts who are so full of freedom and joy in worship That when that choir carries us like they did this morning into the presence of God, you can't help do what I think Al did when he said, Amen. Was that your voice, Al? Good. And I, I, two weeks ago, a Southern Baptist sat in that chair right there where Karen is, and he came to me afterwards and said, Oh, I wanted to say Amen so bad. I said, Say it. What's wrong with us? What's okay? We ought to go down to Bethesda Baptist and take lessons. Oh, I love to speak at that black church down there. Wow. They, 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 they let you know if you're on target. And what about when Leah enthrones the Savior with organ praise? The chorus of amens would not be out of place at the end of that organ praise. Or when the pastor hits some note that you just love on the gospel theme... Let it fly. It's okay with me. I catch my place here. I got lots of notes. I dream of an hour together on Sunday morning when grudges melt. And when old festering wounds are healed in the warmth of the love of God. An hour with God We're battered saints. Can refuel with power from the living Lord to enter the fray again on Monday morning. I dream of a people gathered hungry to hear the word of God and free to make a joyful sound with song and organ and piano and trumpet and flutes and strings and shouts. Like we did a couple of Sundays ago with that great liturgy that Dean led us in. I dream of one hour a week with you where we encounter the living God in such a real way that when visitors walk into this room, they say, God is in this place. And it's not just a dream, praise the Lord. It's happening. It is the will of God for this people. This week, a man came into my office who had been to our service twice, I think he said, from another church in the cities. And he said, just sat down, I didn't know him. He said, I just wanted to make an appointment to come and encourage you to keep on doing it. And then big tears welled up in his eyes. And he said, I just went home and cried that we don't worship at my church like you do. And I was totally surprised because, to me, we got a long way to go. And he was moved. And he told me that he had been saved and nurtured in a house church. Very informal, very free, rich, a lot of spontaneous interaction. I said, well, good night. We must seem like real stuck in the mud because we just plan out everything to the minute. He said, no, no. That's not the point. The point's not the form. The point is whether the leadership on the platform and the people are meeting God. And he's right, isn't he? The form isn't 
what counts. There are dead charismatic churches and there are living liturgical churches. We kind of fall somewhere in the middle. The form is a track. That little bulletin you have in your hand, that's a railroad track to keep us all going in the same direction. And whether we are bulleting along that track to glory or sitting ice cold in the station depends on whether you are Christian hedonists or not. So what can we do to make this dream a reality at Bethlehem? Two things. One is intellectual and the other is emotional, affectional. Intellectually, by God's grace, with his help, I need to be able to persuade you that Christian hedonism is biblical and overcome some of the objections that you feel to it. Emotionally, I need, by God's grace, to awaken in you new affections, a new heart of emotions and desires for God, which have perhaps in some of you long ago, just died. Let me do those two things briefly as God gives me strength now. First, four objections that I'd like to try to overcome to Christian hedonism as it relates to worship. First, Christian hedonism does not mean that God becomes a means to our worldly pleasures. The pleasure that a Christian hedonist seeks is the pleasure which is in God himself. God is not a stepping stone on which we stand in order to get to some other pleasure. Okay? Keep that clear lest it be distorted. The psalm says it this way. I will go to the altar of God to God my exceeding joy. Not God and then something else. God is the exceeding joy. Not the streets of gold in heaven. Not reunion with loved ones. Not any blessing on this earth by way of health or car or job. Nothing but God is our exceeding and great delight. Remember last week I argued from Hebrews 11.6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And I said, you can't please God unless you come to him for reward. Well, I want to stress again this morning, the reward is whom? God. Not any money, not anything else by way of living standard, not any other blessing in heaven, but fellowship with the king of kings age upon age. That doesn't excite you. You need to be converted. Second objection. Christian hedonism is aware that self-consciousness kills joy and kills worship. C.S. Lewis taught me this. As soon as you turn in upon yourself, this place in here where you experience joy, and try to see, no, are you there? Joy? As soon as you see it, it's gone, right? As soon as you become conscious of having a joyful experience, it's ruined. Now, the Christian hedonist knows that, and he's out for as much joy as he can get. 
So he says to the person who goes to the Minneapolis Institute of Art to enjoy the paintings and the sculpture, he says, now when you go in there, you better focus all your attention on the painting. And don't be introspective saying, am I appreciating it? Am I having strong affections of delight in this Rembrandt? It won't work. Self-consciousness kills joy. Now, the implication that has for worship is that we must be radically God-oriented, right? Radically God-oriented. The more self-conscious we become, the less we worship. And I want to pause here and say that's just the opposite of the way many of the churches in our conference think about worship. They think that the more you can interrupt the flow, the more happy people will be. And I'm not sure whom they are worshiping. Third. Third. Here's just two sentences on this one. Christian hedonism does not make a God out of pleasure. Christian hedonism says you have already made a God out of what brings you most pleasure. Fourth. Christian hedonism does not put us above God because we seek him out of self-interest. Christian hedonism does not put us above God because we seek him out of self-interest. Compare. When you go to the doctor and say to the doctor, I came to you to get well. He doesn't say, well, you arrogant so-and-so. You exalt the doctor. When you tell him, I'm sick, I need help, I'm here to get help, self-interest. And he says, well, I have a great responsibility then to help you because you're trusting in me. When a little child, like Abraham, wants to play with his daddy after supper for all the fun there is in it, do I say to Abraham, well, you selfish so-and-so. Wanting all that joy with me. <laughs> Suppose on December 21st, my anniversary, I bring home 15 long stem red roses. 15 this December. And I give them to Noelle at the door and she says, Johnny, they're beautiful. Thank you. And I say, don't mention it. It's my duty. With that word duty, all moral value vanishes. And she has a right to be indignant that I have offended and belittled her person. Yes, it's my duty, but unless I am moved by spontaneous affection for her as a person, the very exercise of my duty belittles her. And, brothers and sisters, that's the problem in worship. We have a sense that this event on Sunday morning is a duty. And yes, it's a duty, but we belittle God 
when we do not respond out of a spontaneous affection for the glory of His person, or long for it, or repent in sorrow that we don't yet have it. My wife is exalted, not belittled, when I say to her, Noel, I'd like to go and spend an evening with you tonight all by ourselves because I get so much pleasure out of being with you. That offend any of you wives? It doesn't offend God either. But dutiful flowers do. The chief end of man is not merely to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That's my construction of the Westminster Catechism, and I think it's the biblical way. If we don't enjoy Him, we can't glorify Him. And therefore, I say that the dream that I have for Bethlehem will not be realized unless I can convert you into Christian hedonists, God helping me. I hope that before we're done with this series, you'll all be intellectually persuaded. But if that's all I achieve, I fail. And therefore, we turn to this last point, that not only must you feel intellectually satisfied that what I'm preaching is not against the Bible, but the fruit of the Bible, you also have to have new affections and desires and uh, emotions stirred up in your heart, which may have lain dormant for many years. Charles Darwin, bad guy, right? Don't let happen to you what happened to Charles Darwin. Listen to this quote from his autobiography that he wrote for his children at the end of his life. Quote, Up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. Formerly, pictures gave me considerable pleasure and music very great delight. But now, for many years, I cannot endure a line of poetry. I have also almost lost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight it formerly did. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, don't let that happen to you, please. And it isn't too late for any of you. Don't let your Christianity become a grinding out of general doctrinal laws, out of great collections of biblical facts. Don't let your first love grow cold. Don't let the childlike awe and wonder at the sunshine die don't let the poetry and music of your relationship to Jesus shrivel up into a little raisin and become no more. Don't let it happen. 
And if it has begun to happen and some of you are dead to the joy of the Lord, pray. God will call it forth again. He will. He will give you a new start. Open your eyes to the glory of the Lord. It is all around you. Behold, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the firmament proclaims His handiwork. Go outside every night before you go to bed and look up. Look at a tree. And as the fall comes, watch the colors. Look into a child's eye. Awake yourself to the wonders that surround you and then know that they are just dim shadows of the Creator. God will awaken you. Last Monday night, I was in a jet flying back from Chicago. With this, I close. It was about... uh, nine o'clock and it was pitch black the plane was almost empty so I took a seat on the eastern side by a window the pilot came on and said there's a thunderstorm over Lake Michigan up by Milwaukee so we're going to be traveling to the left around the thunderstorm and I sat there in quietness looking out into the total blackness of the night and all of a sudden the whole sky was brilliant with light. And a cavern of white clouds just fell away before me, two, three, four miles beneath the plain, and then vanished. A whole canyon vanished in a second. And then a second later, a mammoth tunnel of light exploded out of the north all the way to the south across the horizon. And then pretty soon the whole horizon was filled with lightning and volcanoes of light was bursting up out of canyons of clouds and the distant white mountains of clouds were being lit up just like great huge piles of cotton. It was fantastic. I had not felt anything like that for years. And I said, God, if this is but the sparks of the sharpening of your sword, what will the day of your appearing be? And the text came to my mind from Matthew 24, like the lightning flashes from the east to the horizon in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man in His day. And even this morning, as I recollect in tranquility, as Wordsworth said, as I recollect on that experience, I thank God that He gave it to me. He has over my 37 years come to me again and again and brought me to life afresh when I've been dying, when the raisin has been shriveling, when I could see nothing on the horizon anymore. He has done something for me, brought some person into my life like a Clyde Kilby or a C.S. Lewis or a Barnabas William, and brought everything to life again with Him shining glorious behind it, and He'll do it for you. And that's what Sunday morning is all about. Meeting an unutterably glorious God and feeling a delight and a longing welling up in our hearts to Him or repenting in sorrow that it isn't happening. 350 years ago, Johann Frank, a burgermeister in Germany, not even a clergyman, wrote the most hedonistic hymn in our hymnal. 
Jesu meine Freude, meines Herzens Weide, Jesu meine Zier. Jesus priceless treasure. And now may the Lord grant you the eyes to see and the heart to feel that Jesus only is priceless treasure and purest pleasure. And all the people said, Amen.